to get all my gear because we're going to be here for a while. So hope you brought your snack bars and things like that. What part of the part of the privilege of, of doing what I do is uh, I get to write letters of recommendation occasionally, and so I'm thinking this morning we've taken down all your names, and uh, uh, we're, I'm going to write letters of recommendation to the Lord for you for an extra jewel in your crown for coming out this morning. So I must I must tell you though that on the form that I've seen, um, I don't think there's any checkbox for coming out in snowstorms, but it's worth a try anyway. We'll see. That's supposed to be a joke. Didn't work very well. Okay. Sermon on the Mount. Let's get back to it. There's really, really good stuff, really deep stuff that we're, that we're working on. Um, and I'm excited about where we're going this morning. In fact, let's, let's pray before we begin. Lord Jesus, I can, I can visualize the, the Sea of Galilee and the, and the rolling hills that come up off of the Sea of Galilee and where you might have gathered your disciples together that day and the, and the crowd that gathered around you and them and you sitting down to teach these truths of your kingdom, of what it means to follow you, what it means to be a citizen of your kingdom, what it means to, to live out the transformed life. And, and you, you gave the Beatitudes that we've already talked about this morning and and then as you work your way through the topics in the Sermon on the Mount, you, you draw us deeper and deeper and deeper into not only your kingdom, but your heart and your passion for us as we follow after you. But Lord, it's, it's a difficult mirror to look into. And it's a difficult calling to listen to and to heed and to follow. So we entrust ourselves to you this morning for your teaching, for your Holy Spirit to to light up those places in our heart that need to be touched by your grace and by your courage, your power, your strength today. So take us into your word. Hold our feet in the center of it that we might understand, we might comprehend, and that our lives might be changed because of your word and your truth this morning. In your name we pray and dedicate ourselves. Amen. In his book on the Sermon on the Mount, our, our Kent Hughes tells the story of C.S. Lewis being openly challenged in a, in, by a colleague in a Christian publication. One of the accusations that was leveled at Lewis was that he didn't care for the Sermon on the Mount. So Lewis, in his reply, said this, and I think we have a slide for it. As to caring for the Sermon on the Mount... If caring for here means liking or enjoying, I suppose no one cares for it. Who can like being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer? I can hardly imagine a more deadly spiritual condition than that of a man who can read that passage with tranquil pleasure. Isn't that an amazing thought coming from C.S. Lewis? This is difficult territory that we're walking through. As we walk through the Beatitudes, the portion of the Beatitudes, uh, it proved to be a difficult mirror of, of kingdom truth to look into. And, and then it got worse. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 20, that our righteousness needed to exceeded that of the Pharisees and the scribes. And they were religious leaders that were known for their righteousness. And yet Jesus said our righteousness needs to exceed that. 
the kingdom of God truths continue to pour out of Jesus in, in Matthew chapter 5, and they aren't getting easier. Murder is actually an issue that begins in our hearts. It's an anger issue. Our worship is compromised if we don't genuinely, genuinely seek reconciliation with others. Adultery is not just an act, but it's a deep-seated issue of the heart. Divorce is not the open-ended option that we make it out to be. And last week we talked about the integrity of our word and, and being known as those who speak and hold to the truth. It seems like every topic begins innocuous enough, easy enough, straightforward enough, but ends up being terribly uncomfortable as we look into the depths of our heart. No wonder that Lewis didn't mind saying that he didn't particularly enjoy the Sermon on the Mount. But don't worry, it gets easier. Today's lesson is quite simple. Don't resist the person who is evil. Don't resist the person who hurts or belittles or takes your clothes. Turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. When someone ridicules your faith, perpetrates an injustice on you or makes an unreasonable demand, then just go with it. In fact, go further than is being demanded of you. See, I told you it was getting easier. It's another kingdom value that leaves us absolutely dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit to walk in it. So as we climb up the hill of Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus continues his comparison of the kingdom with the distortions that had been applied to Old Testament law. Apparently, the idea of an eye for an eye had been something, had been transformed into something that it, it was never intended to be. So let's look. Matthew chapter 5, if you would. Let me read the whole passage for you this morning. Jesus said this, You have heard that it was said, as, as he begins every teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would, would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. <coughs> so again, Jesus begins his teaching here in Matthew 5 as he does with every teaching in Matthew 5, begins his teaching by referring to the Old Testament and the teachings of the rabbis and the religious leaders. So, this is what you've heard. This is the way you've heard it. And he, said, he begins here by saying, so what you've heard is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. How many times, I wonder, have we been in a conversation and heard someone use this idea to reject Christianity as a violent, vengeful religion. It gets distorted. And how many of us have not had an answer for that? So let's let Jesus teach us on this today. What's he referring to? What's the Old Testament law? So here's, here are two examples of the Old Testament law. Look at this. Exodus chapter 21. 
But if there is harm, this is verse 23, if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. So there it is. There's the law. An eye for an eye. If we turn over to Leviticus chapter 24, verses 19 and 20, we're told this. This is the law. If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. So there's the law of retaliation, as it's called. So turn with me, if you would. Keep your finger in Matthew 5. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 19. Back to the law, back to the Old Testament. Here it is again. Let's just camp on this a little, a little more full description. I'll start at verse 16. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord. And that's key. I've underlined that in this passage, shall appear before the Lord. That means it's not between you and me. That we're bringing the Lord into the discussion, okay? There's a third party here, and it happens to be the Lord in this case. But then he goes on to explain before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. So we're bringing in the authorities. We're bringing in those who are responsible, those who are charged with leading the nation, those who are charged with being judges. And the important thing is it's not between you and me. Okay, let's keep reading. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brothers falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. And this is the reason for this law of retaliation. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear, and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, and foot for foot. Your eye shall not pity. This is the law. This is the law of retaliation, eye for an eye. And the reason is it's, called, it's, it's there to give us order. So as we've seen, an infraction needs to come before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office. It's meant to be handled by those in authority, by judges. It's not a personal vengeance. It's, if we could use the term, it's a legal vengeance. And the system is there to put fear, and justice into, fear of justice into the people, to respect law and order so that we all live together without chaos. We also see here that there are consequences to evil, consequences to wrongdoing, consequences when we violate community standards. My understanding is that this is the oldest law in the world. It's called, and, and lock this in your brain, it's called lex talionis, the law of retaliation. It actually dates back to the Code of Hammurabi. It was put in place to keep order in society. There are two components to this law that are really important for us to understand why this is critical to a, a society. First of all, it requires retribution. An offense of the law calls for punishment. 
It's meant to keep order. And the second thing that goes with this lex talionis is that it calls for equal retribution. The punishment has to fit the crime or the offense. In Genesis 9, 6, God requires a life for any life that's taken by murder. He calls for a reckoning. He calls for a life for a life. In the story of Daniel in the lion's den, we see that Daniel was spared in the lion's den because, of, because he was a righteous man. He was, it, it was, the lions didn't attack him and eat him because he had no sin in his life. He wasn't, he wasn't guilty of the things he was accused of. Then the king, when he saw that Daniel had not been attacked by the lions all night long, remember what happened? He came in and said, Daniel, are you still there? And those who had made the false accusation were then thrown into the lion's den. And you remember what happened to them? It didn't go well. In fact, I read the version, I read the account again in Daniel 9, and it says they didn't even hit the floor before the lions attacked them. That's the lex talionis. That's the law of retribution. The idea of eye for an eye was given for our benefit. And why? Because it, it put justice in the hands of the authorities where it belongs. Without it, we wind up with family feuds. We wind up with the Hatfields and McCoys. I think if we, if we think about it, if this law wasn't in place, it would be like the violence and the anarchy of the days of Noah, which in our men's study, we, we've talked about the days of Noah. It's absolute anarchy because this law wasn't in place. When retribution, when vengeance, and when reckoning are left in the hands of individuals, you have anarchy. So by the time of Jesus, the understanding of this had, had somewhat drifted back to the individual again. Not in a literal way, but in the attitudes of people to seek their own vengeance for wrong. Our legal system is infused with this idea of lex talionis. We've put authorities in place to act as judges. We've, we've put people in place who are, are called to safeguard justice, to punish evil and to punish wrongdoers. And so my heart is grieved. And, and this is the reason, I think, when, when we watch the news and we see rioting in the streets, when we see people taking the law into their own hands, then the, this order is breaking down. When we see a two-tiered justice system where, where some are punished and others are not, then the lex talionis system is breaking down right before our eyes. When we see cities like Chicago with, with violent crimes out of control, Lex Talionis is breaking down. It's, it's vengeance is being put into the hands of individuals and it's running rampant. It's running out of control. So the next time someone makes an accusation that Christian is a violent religion based on this idea, calling for an eye, an eye for an eye, you can remind them this is actually God's system in place to keep order in our society, to bring justice to the whole world. That order and that security comes from the assurance of retribution and the equality of retribution. So here we go. Verse 39, as he does in every section in chapter 5, he says, but I say to you, he's going to turn it all upside down. Jesus has been turning over a lot of conventional wisdom all through Matthew chapter 5 and in the Beatitudes but nothing like he's about to do with this truth. As a 
kingdom principle, he takes the lex talionis in a whole new direction. You see, the cry of our day is to resist. The cry of our day is to stand against authority, to resist the government, to undermine anything that you don't agree with. That's the law of the day. Conventional wisdom today says to resort to violence or deception in order to get your way. But Jesus calls the citizens of his kingdom to go in the opposite direction. Do not resist the one who is evil. It flies in the face of today's conventional wisdom to, to stand your ground and to demand your rights. I imagine that this was the case in, in the day of Jesus as well. In fact, there was a rebel movement among the Jews that sought to overthrow the occupying Romans, right? To throw them, overthrow them by force, but that wound up in the destruction of Jerusalem and the captivity of the people. It doesn't work. This idea of non-resistance, I have to tell you, is, is terribly difficult to understand. Terribly difficult to understand how we apply it in our lives. It can't mean that we are to be doormats. It can't mean that we just, we just lay down and let, let anybody roll over us that they want to. If that were true, then injustice would run, would run rampant in our world. There has to be a time to stand up, but there's also a time to yield. And that's the tension that Jesus is inviting us into when he says, when he gives us his truth. And so in order to help us understand this, Jesus gives us some examples. Well, this is how it works then. Do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone says to you, and that's where we're going. So let's just take this apart thought by thought and see if we can wrap our minds around what Jesus is trying to teach us here. Start with the one who is evil. Do not resist the one who is evil. So who is the evil person? That's the first question who is this evil person? And if, if we're normal, if, we're, if we have our, our, our sin nature in full operation, anybody who stands against us is the evil person. Right? Sometimes I feel like I'm too quick to throw out this, this evil label. The evil person could, could refer to, the, to the, the evil one, Satan, who's behind it all anyway. But more likely, it's just... It's referring to the person who, who trades in injustice, who disrupts peace, the person who lives in sin and promotes sin and, and is angry if you don't abide <clears throat> in sin with them. It's, this evil person is probably the one who doesn't know how to or doesn't exhibit love, true love, or is all too ready to distort God's love. all too ready to distort God's law as well. That's the evil person. Or, or the person who is evil could simply represent somebody who's not part of God's family, the other group, and who seeks to undermine everything that God is doing. In Jesus' day, it might have been thought of that, it was, that Jesus was talking about the Roman occupiers. But no matter what the perception of the evil one is, no matter how we choose to define it, it comes down to people that we deal with on a daily basis. Either they're operating under kingdom principles or they're not. Either they're following Jesus' teaching on this or they're not. They're part of the other group. 
So let's see if we can understand this a little better. What does non-resistance look like? Let's walk through the examples. Turn the cheek. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now this is more than someone, someone who's hitting you in the face. The idea here is that it's somebody who goes right at your dignity, that, that challenges your self-worth, that challenges your value. If a person slaps you on the face in this context, or worse yet, if it's somebody who hits you with the back of their hand, it's a direct insult to you. And it's such an insult to you that there were, there were punishments actually designated for someone who would do this. There was a legal punishment. The financial penalty, if somebody hit you with the back of their hand, the financial penalty was actually doubled because they hit you with the back of the hand. And it's all referring to the idea that it's the ultimate insult to your integrity, to your being, to your dignity, to your value. But Jesus, Jesus turns it all around. He, said, he says, instead of lex talionis, the law of retaliation, instead of seeking vengeance to the one who slapped you with the back of his hand, who attacked your dignity, who attacked your value, your worth, instead of seeking vengeance, a follower of Jesus with the law of non-resistance gives that person the other cheek. Do you want to hit me again? And I told you this was going to get easier, right? Okay, are you with me? You look like you have puzzled looks on your faces. I do too. What in the world? Someone slaps me across the face, and we've all been there, maybe not with a slap on the face, but we've all been there with someone who is purposely attacking your character, your worth. And Jesus says, give them the other cheek. And then he goes on to say, okay, if that, so if that example doesn't help you, let's go on to another one. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. The idea here, and if we need to get inside what, what dress would look like back in those days, the tunic was something that was an undergarment. It's, 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 it's the clothes underneath the cloak. The cloak is the robe that we always picture in those scenes. The tunic is the undergarment. And apparently, you could sue somebody for that. It was part, if it was part of a legal action, if somebody sued you, they could take your tunic. But they couldn't take your cloak, the outer, outer fabric, the outer cloth, the covering, the coat. You know why they couldn't do that? Because that cloak was, this, was what you slept with. The cloak is what kept you warm at night. So legally, if somebody sued you, they could have your undergarments, but they couldn't have your cloak for more than a day because you needed it again at night in order to sleep. It was illegal. And if somebody stole your cloak from you, there was, a, there was tremendous ramifications for that as well. You did not give your cloak away. It was, a, it was an integral part of life. And Jesus says, if somebody sues you for your tunic, then give them your cloak as well. It means you're giving everything. If somebody sues you and comes after you, give it away. 
you see how Jesus is taking us down and down and down into this truth. And it gets worse, if it can. And he says, okay, let's take the next one. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, then go with him two miles. The idea here is there's several ideas, but um, a Roman soldier could press anyone into service at any time for any reason. One illustration I read was uh, they had a system of messaging that was similar to the Pony Express where they had outposts, they had stations along the way, and you would, the Roman soldier would ride a horse and come to the next station. If their horse was exhausted and couldn't go any farther, they could take your horse. I need your horse. And they would ride on to the next station. Or the other thing that they could do is they could say, look, I need to get a, I need to get a message back over to here, and uh, I don't have time to do it, so I'm going to press you into service today, and you need to go down to the next town and take this message for me. And there was nothing that, some, uh, that a Hebrew, a Jewish person could say about it. The Romans had absolutely, absolute authority to press you into service and make you do whatever they needed you to do. And a mile wasn't a mile like we're thinking of. A mile was a 1,000 paces. You were charged. If, if they said, I need you, it was for a 1,000 paces. You know what Jesus is saying here? If they call you to go a 1,000 paces, if they ask for your animal, if they ask for something and it's unreasonable and you're pressed into service without your volunteering it, then go another 1,000 paces. Go another mile. The example from Scripture is that of Simon of Cyrene when, when Jesus was carrying his cross down the road. You remember what happened? He couldn't carry the cross anymore. They pressed him into service, right? You, you come and carry the cross. Me? He had no choice in the matter because of this rule. Jesus says, if they call you to do that, if they demand of you this, then go the extra mile. Let's keep going. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. I, I just put live generously here. Give to the one who is begging. When we lived in Romania, this was, this was a, a, a part of the, the fabric of life every day. People were sitting on the streets and they were, when we go to the post office, we had to walk upstairs to a second floor to get into the post office. There were always people sitting on the steps with their hands out like this. And we just wrestle with it every day. Do I give? Do I not give? Jesus says, you know what? If they beg, give. And if somebody asks you for a loan and there's something that's, that's, that's forceful about it or you're being kind of, kind of coerced into that situation, then don't worry about getting repaid. Live generously. Hold your wealth loosely. The lex talionis, the law of retaliation, was given to establish order in a society. But Jesus tells us that there's a greater law at stake here. It's the law of love. This law is more concerned about the work of God around us, more concerned about the work of God in that other person, more concerned about the testimony of the gospel in the life of that other person than it is about retaliation. It's a hard principle to get our heads around. It's even more important than our own safety or our own offense. His teaching here 
cuts across the grain of everything that we know. Our nature is to demand our rights. Our nature is to defend ourselves. Our, na- our nature is to demand justice. But Jesus is less worried about that than he is to show the world another way, to show the world the, the way of love, the way of shalom, peace. He wants to show the way of God's love, God's forgiveness and, for, and, and, and restoration. So we're to be agents of his when we yield to those who would prosecute, persecute us. We are agents of his when we confront those who would wound us. As one author put it, we are to be ready to resist. We are to be ready for an act of grace. Have you had enough? This is tough stuff. So what kind of kingdom wisdom can we take away from this? Next week, you saw the trailer for Richard Wormbrand, the story of Richard Wormbrand, Tortured for Christ. And uh, I'll just reiterate what Caleb said already. There are some scenes in there with implied violence. There's some scenes in there with, with violence. And it's hard to watch. It's hard to watch. But it's a case study of what we're talking about this morning. Richard Wormbrand was a Lutheran pastor in Romania. And he gets, he gets taken because he speaks out for the gospel in the, in the times of communism, in the mid-40s. He speaks out and he gets taken to prison. And our sister church is in Pitesh, Romania. He was in several prisons. He was actually held in Pitesh, Romania, and been prison there as well. He um, undergoes horrible abuse and torture. But he chooses to love his captors. Um, there's a scene in the movie. Okay, this is spoiler alert. Okay? There's a scene in the movie where the guard swings open the cell door and Richard Wormbrand is on his knees and he's praying. And the guard says, you're not to be praying. And he gets beaten for praying. They haul him off and they beat him again for praying. And the, and the officer says to him, we have beaten you for praying. Don't you know that, that you're not supposed to be praying? What on earth could you be praying for after all this? And Wormbrad looks at him. He's still on his knees. He looks at him and he says, I'm praying for you. That's the story of Richard Wormbrad. He's the founder of Martyrs. Uh, uh, Voice of the Martyrs. Thank you. My mind just went blank right there. But you know what? He, the other side of this coin is that he never gave the names of the people in his church. So he did resist in that way. On the other hand, he, he's willingly, not gladly, but willingly submitted to their abuse. That's the tension that God is inviting us into here. That's the law of retaliation and the law of non-resistance living together. How do we weave our way through this principle, this tension? The first thing I can think of is that we, we don't need to worry about vengeance. That belongs to God. Just listen to this, this scripture. 
Isaiah chapter 35, verse 4. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and he will save you. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 30 says this, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And then in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 17, You shall not hate your brothers in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So what about pacifism? One of the, one of the, the, the responses to this, this teaching, this truth, is, is to let the pendulum swing all the way over to the other side and say, pacifism is what Jesus is teaching here. No rights to respond, no rights to, to defend yourself, nothing like that. In fact, some go so far as to say that governments should even hold to this and should should make pacifism the word of the day. Gandhi was a good example of this. He was, I don't know if you know this or not, but Gandhi was deeply influenced, I understand, by the Sermon on the Mount. It's what drew him to Jesus. It's, it's what made him have respect for who Jesus was. And he called, because of this teaching, he called for nonviolence and is known for nonviolence. His idea was that you would respond to your enemies only with truth. You would just discuss with them, talk to them. In fact, he went so far as to say in World War II, he, he went so far as to say that if the Japanese invaded his homeland, he would meet them only armed with truth. He told the Jews to respond to Hitler with nonviolence and negotiation. He told the English to not take up arms against Germany. And I think we've seen history has, has bore out to us that there are times when, there is, when retaliation is called for. There are times, especially for a government, to stand up to the tyrants of the world. Pacifism is not necessarily the message of this teaching. So what is it? How do we, as followers of Christ, weave these things together? Jesus gave us some examples but what does it mean for us living on a, a daily basis? When I, when I thought about this, it, it comes down to dealing with an overbearing boss or a, a coworker who is just pressing him or herself on you all the time. In the workplace, it's an art form to stand for yourself while choosing non-resistance. If someone is trying to get rid of you, if somebody is making your life miserable, it's an art form to follow this truth that Jesus is calling us to, non-resistance. Go the extra mile. And there's a clear calling to us to let, God's, let God be the one who brings vengeance. Put it in God's hands. My life is in his hands. My future is in his hands. He knows my future, and he will care for me. Truth will always win. So we can rest in that, we can more easily walk in the path of non-resistance. Or sometimes it comes when, when we're managing our way through family dynamics, when, when we're trying to work out marriage issues, when we're trying, to, we're trying to raise kids who maybe don't really want to comply, to follow your leading. 
Or maybe there's someone in your extended family that's making your life miserable. How do we apply this law of non-resistance in that situation? Even in the marketplace, I had a, a, a story recently in my own life where this might sound kind of silly, but the door on my shed warped, and I can't close it anymore. So I called the lumberyard. It took me two months of phone calls to get them to come out and look and see what went wrong with my shed door, silly shed door. I had lots of phone calls, lots of opportunities to get, just get crazy. Would you please get out here? They finally came. It was a typical story of bad, bad, bad customer service. Silly story. I think it's part of the ebb and flow of daily life. You see, it's not, it's not always Dietrich Bonhoeffer or Richard Wurmbrand suffering at the hands of terrible persecution. It can be just the daily things that we have to wrestle with this idea. I'm going to rest in God. I'm going to let God take this. And I'm going to choose the law of non-resistance. I'm going to go the extra mile and let God's power be seen, let God's testimony, let the gospel be seen in my life. We don't always face huge choices or issues. Most of the time the battlefront is, on, is in the everyday issues of life and in our relationship. The Sermon on the Mount is not designed to be a checklist for us. It's not designed to be a set of rules that we, that we follow A plus B equals C. Rather, it's a set of kingdom principles that citizens of God's kingdom walk in. It doesn't answer every situation or give us the do's and don'ts of every decision. They're principles that should frame our lives, should frame our perspectives, should frame our desires. And when I think about it, when, when you think about it, what kind of a testimony is it when someone who takes terrible abuse, who takes persecution, absorbs it and responds with non-resistance? and is willing to go the extra mile to turn the other cheek, to give generously. What kind of a testimony does, it bring, does that bring? Think about all the examples in your own life that you've seen or that you've lived. And what a powerful testimony it is to God's kingdom when we choose to not retaliate, but to go the extra mile. May that be said of us. I leave it to you to work this out because you're going to need the Holy Spirit to tell you how to weave this into your life when you confront situations. Jesus is saying, this is who you are. This is the pathway. Walk in it. Let's pray as the worship team comes forward.